Welcome to the Proclaim and Defend podcast, a ministry of the Foundations Baptist Fellowship International. We seek to encourage and inform pastors on modern-day topics from a biblical perspective. Our mission is to bring together like-minded Baptists to collaborate in glorifying God through fulfilling the Great Commission. Hi, it's Don Johnson again with the Proclaim and Defend podcast. In this episode, we are bringing one of the messages from our recent annual meeting held at Faith Baptist Bible College and Seminary in Ankeny, Iowa. You can find audio for all the messages at fbfiannualfellowship.org. Just look under the Media tab. There you will see messages for 2023 and for 2022 as well. We also plan to release the messages and workshops in the podcast format over the next several weeks. So you can have a choice. You can go to the website and get them all and uh, for a binge listening episode, or you can take it in uh, smaller bites over the summer through your podcast feed. It's up to you. The conference was a special blessing to us all. I hope you enjoy the messages and make plans to attend our 2024 meeting in Denver. Now for today's featured message. All right, thank you for coming this afternoon, and um, I'll try to keep you awake. It's easy to get double parked in the twilight zone in uh, right after lunch. Uh, in the in the, uh, the the conference booklet, this is billed as a care model for counseling um, uh, ministry, and I'm I only know about three things. I just have to recycle it, so I just use uh, the the same one I use in uh, training. Volunteers for uh, uh, addiction and, and freedom at last, um, and so my illustrations will come out of that. But actually, the the care plan works for anybody that you're working with. I'll tell you a, a quick background. Um, when I, I did a doctor ministry in biblical counseling, my my goal for the writing project was to develop a training program for lay volunteers in a local church addiction recovery discipleship program, which is freedom that lasts. You, you know, those writing project titles are like sermon, are like Puritan sermon titles. You know, they just, dissertation titles are really, really long. Um, and so what I did is went to the secular world, the integrationist counseling world, the biblical counseling world, and tried to discern, has anybody come up with core competencies for training lay volunteers and um, uh, it's it's interesting that the uh, National Institute of Mental Health, the division that works with ad- addiction, uh, has come up with 120 competencies for addiction professionals. And so they use those, the uh, training institutions, secular training institutions, use those 120 to um, uh, for for certifying agencies to um, make sure that their people are meeting these competencies and uh, master's programs in the secular world have to meet those 120 competencies. What I discovered, a fascinating thing with a little more research, is that a subcommittee of the committee that did this um, uh, did some work on what which of these do the clergy need to know. And it's very interesting in their um, uh, in their presentation uh, stating that the clergy are the first line responders in most neighborhoods for addiction, and and they have um, the greatest influence on families. Of, of course, it depends on how secular or um, uh, religious a neighborhood is, but. But and so they took that subset, or they they came up with a subset of twelve of those competencies, and a lot of them had to deal with knowing the the kinds of community services available. You know the um, uh, what kind of uh, detox centers are in your neighborhood? What kind of food banks are there? Uh, just all kinds of resources that you would do and. And that's one thing we do. I, I'm, I'm very much in, involved with discovering what kind of community resources are there because the church doesn't have to duplicate having a food bank if there's one close by or um, or um, free health care and that kind of thing. And, and, you know, you may sound this may sound heretical, but the best source of information of all of that for me is United Way. Um, you know, I don't support 
uh, much of anything they do, but they provide a wonderful brochure in Greenville of all of these low, uh, low income housing areas and all, all kinds of things like that that I will uh, hand to people when they're, they're um, wanting housing or something of that nature. But, but this, uh, these 12 competencies uh, had to do with uh, how to work with the mental health world around you and this kind of thing. But what it, what it did establish from an evidence-based thing for a, for a writing project is that the world recognizes that, that the clergy can be competent in some areas that w- we don't have to know all of the, uh, all of the uh, different ways of approaching addiction in the secular world and all that kind of thing. Um, so that was one of my arguments in uh, providing these. So in this CARE model, uh, which stands for Connect, Assess, Restore, and Equip, uh, or in, uh, Equip, uh, Enlist, um, uh, developed these core competencies, and then I had to put together a committee of experts who in this field, like Mark Shaw and, and some others, who looked this over and could establish that this is these are valid competencies, and so then I developed a training program. Uh, I think I have a slide about that later on. Um, uh, yeah, I do. Helping others overcome addictions. Um, uh, we're not Exhibit 16 here, but but that uh, there's a seven and a half hour training program there on video that that uh, you can get. I think we have that brochure at the Freedom at Last um, uh, booth. So anyway, that's kind of the background for all of this, but I, I use it. This is a model I use when I'm teaching um, the, the, the practice of counseling, the methodology of counseling. And so I present it, and I've, it, was, it was created for laymen. Um, so I uh, hope it will be a, a, um, a blessing. A little bit of background. This is what Friday night looks at Freedom Baptist, looks like at Freedom Baptist Church. This is our... Addiction program on Friday nights. We're running regularly a hundred every Friday night. Probably fifteen of those are our volunteers, care group leaders. The rest of them are men and women from uh, town, from even from other churches. Uh, some family members in our church are bringing a, a, a wayward son who's addicted and is required by the court to attend recovery programs uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, our motto is Jesus Christ is the only source of freedom that lasts. Millions of people become get sober every year without Jesus. But you can't become everything God created a human being to become without a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we really pr- promote that. Our uh, change principle is we do what we do because we are what we are on the inside. And to change what we do, we must cooperate with God to change what we are. Um, and our mission is we exist to equip churches. This is Independent um, Baptist Church in Bolingbrook, um, Illinois. Uh, Jack Les is a pastor there now. It was David Schof. Some of you may know them. Freedom That Last exists to equip churches to welcome, evangelize, and biblically counsel the hurting and addicted to grow in Christ-like character and wisdom and living life. Um, so that just a little bit uh, of an overview. Um, so let me introduce you to the uh, CARE model. Uh, connect, I'll just pass over this and then we'll dive into it, um, it, is where we build bridges to provide discipleship opportunities. That was mentioned this morning about building bridges for evangelism. And uh, my contention is we can spend a lot of time building bridges and never drive truth over that bridge. And we can, I, you know, I would, I would often say to the faculty in a, in a workshop, uh, it's it's fine to eat lunch with that student and and uh, you feel good about yourself of you know reaching out to a student and he feels good about himself because somebody important talked to him and but this isn't about feeling good about ourselves this is about discipling and that means truth is involved in some way and if you never drive truth over the bridge there isn't a real point in building that bridge except making everybody feel good about himself. Um, Assess means to determine the whole person needs as uh, the whole person needs as appropriate, and it depends on how much you're working with this individual, how much is really appropriate for you to know. Um, And uh, then restore. This is the discipleship component. Uh, Help restore and rebuild relationship with God and others, and and of course evangelism, if if they don't know Christ as Savior. 
and then enlist, solicit the help from others when needed and appropriate. And this is where community resources comes in uh, at, at, at that point. Um, I, w- one advantage that we have, and I encourage folks who have chapters to really make those connections with other with other evangelical faith-based organizations in town that may have uh, may have um, resident facilities, that that's something that the church can't provide. At least our church can't provide. Um, but we can work with other faith-based um, uh, ministries because they usually have a requirement that everybody has to go to at least two or three um, uh, recovery programs a week. And uh, so I make connections so that we can become one of those authorized places to come. And then we'll send a bus to pick up folks coming from that. And uh, we have uh, several, we have people coming from probably any given night, six to eight different resident facilities in Greenville. And the advantage of that in a lot of ways, these people, have, these men and women have already been vetted that they're serious about uh, about dealing with their problem. And they've also come to those places because they think God has something to do with that in some way. And and the other advantage is that they have to be clean and sober to stay in those facilities. So we're dealing with men and women every Friday night that are clean and sober, even though they've had horrible addiction problems in the past. So working with faith-based institutions is a phenomenal vetting Thing for you. Over 13 years, I've only had two men come drunk. And one was very compliant. He just sat in the back row and just slept the whole time, which, which is fine. Um, another guy came in and was rather combative. And, and so I asked him to leave and, and, um, and he complied with that. But this has not been a huge problem. But one of the, one of the advantages is working through, uh, we do have people come off, uh, off the streets. Uh, when they hear about it or they hop on the bus at the rescue mission, they're not staying at the rescue mission, but they, they hear they serve a meal, so they, they come along. Um, uh, but there are ways you, but that's taken some years of working with, uh, facilities in town to establish those relationships and, and build those bridges. Um, well, an interesting thing, uh, some of you are familiar with Miracle Hill in Greenville. Uh, they have several of these facilities and they have noticed such a difference. Between student uh, with with uh, we we call everybody students. We're all here as learners, disciples. So we call all ourselves students, and and uh, so their students come, and and they come back with significant truth that is affecting their lives. And in other other faith based recovery programs at churches, it's it's a, a big worship service, a big rock concert. And, and they notice the difference in the discipleship. And so Miracle Hill has started asking me to come once a quarter and do training for their counselors in all these different facilities. And so we have a, we have a way of, we have an opportunity to influence the other organizations in, in Greenville. They aren't doing exactly the way we would, but now they're asking us to help them do it better. And uh, that's a wonderful opportunity. Um, so connect. Uh, build bridges to provide discipleship opportunities. By the way, this is uh, the, the line uh, meals ap- afterwards. We, we serve all hundred of them a meal every Friday night, and um, that's a great time of fellowship and, and connection. Um, so, number one, be, be, build rapport by showing acceptance, empathy, and compassion. And a lot of our very conservative churches aren't real welcoming to men and women struggling with addiction who don't look like us. I constantly tell our people when I have a chance to talk with them, if we're doing our job in this neighborhood, there ought to be a lot of people in here who don't look like us because our neighborhood doesn't look like us. And uh, and our church over the years has become very, very welcoming. We're, we, have a, we have a ways to go, I think, yet. And with new people coming in, there's constant... Uh, work that has to be done. One of the guys that I've been uh, discipling for a couple of years now, uh, just really growing in the Lord, and um, he was visiting the rescue mission. He's not in the rescue mission anymore, but visiting the rescue mission and was asking one of his buddies who was there, to, you need to come to Faith Baptist Church. And he said, man, I, I don't do church. They, people at church don't want me there. And, and James said, at Faith Baptist Church, when you walk in the door, somebody walks toward you. They don't walk away from you. 
And that's that's an important thing to you can bring awanas into your church with a lot of ripples, but you can't bring in ministry to adult addicts without some pushback. So a pastor has to actually start talking, walking them through the Gospels of how Jesus met people like that. And he went to the untouchables and the outcasts. And and if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to be willing to do that. And um, some people say, well, you know, what about all the, you know, they're, they steal. And in, in 13 years, we haven't had any theft, um, not even of a, of a bridge track that I know about. Nobody's, <laughs> nobody's come and asked about that. Um, and uh, no damage to property. Uh, you know, they, 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 once you become a church known as somebody who wants to help, there's an amazing, um, and, and you love them. We had a little black lady that I was um, I had her give a testimony one night in in church, and um, she said, "I just wanted to, I want to tell you all something." She said, "When I when I come down, uh, she said I, I walk down this aisle, and she said, you know what I feel? I feel love from you people. Don't you ever forget you're here to love people. You need to love people like me, and I'm thankful that you do. Don't you ever stop doing that." And she just. She just preached a little black sermon right there, you know. <laughs> Beautiful little lady. Um, God's done a lot of things in her life. Um, but we have to deal with people with acceptance and empathy and compassion. I said this yesterday in the session here. We, we don't counsel disorders. We counsel people with troubles. And that means we, we connect so that we can begin assessing and finding out what those troubles are. Um, number two, build trust and a sense of safety by actively and respectfully listening, graciously responding, and appropriately keeping confidence. Um, their story is their own, and you, you don't have permission to share it unless they've given you permission to share it. Like, like Heather's testimony that uh, uh, Kevin Shaw gave the, the other night, um, uh, he sent that to me and got Heather's permission to read it to our people. And uh, actually, I printed it out and used it as a handout. But but you have to have permission to use their story. Um, and they come. I, I remember when we first started. Our pastor got up on a Wednesday night when it was just the core people, and he said, "We have we're having a lot of people uh, starting to come with freedom at last. I never ever want to hear anybody." Uh, who fussed at somebody because of his tattoos or because of the piercings? We're we're not here to to uh, we're here to evangelize them and help them. And um, uh, I don't ever want to hear that. And our church has been very very gracious uh, on that. And I think it's and our pastor would say it has changed the culture of our church. Uh, I remember when I first started it, I've been dean of students for 30 years, and Patty and I have in a row seven and eight men and women, and they're tattooed and pierced and flip-flopped and jeans, you know, falling down their backside. And and um, and people would say, you know, if Jim Berg, dean of students, can can find people like this and love them, I, I work with them. And they would start bringing their coworkers with them. And uh, our people learn to love folks. And it's, uh, there's... Our church has done more hugging and more clapping since we've had freedom at last, and it's been wonderful. Um, but they have to, you think about it when somebody walks in who's been a streetwalker or who's been in and out of jail and has got a felony record, they are full of shame, and they think everybody can read that. And, and church is a scary place to be. And I tell people, nobody ought to come into this church and sit alone. Now, I've had a couple of men where, where they sat right in the back by, a, by an exit. And I, I said, uh, Joe, you, uh, you, you want to come sit with me? And he said, no, I, I need to sit here all by myself. Well, I'm, I'm respecting that. And I know he's got a lot of social anxiety or something. And he wants to be near that exit. And I'm going to respect that. And it's not long before he is sitting with us or sitting with somebody that we introduce him to. But that's, that's building that safety. Uh, number three, explain the goals of discipleship and express commitment to help and pray. Now, this is on an individual basis if you're working with somebody, but also in our um, opening newcomer um, uh, 
program. Uh, when everybody's in their small groups doing the curriculum, then I'm meeting with the newcomers that week and, and helping them understand this is a, this is a safe place. Um, number four, offer biblical reasons to have hope and encourage the person to stay involved in the group. And uh, we do that in the newcomer thing. When I'm working with um, an individual, then, you know, these are steps we go through, too, or elements that we include, the, the goal of biblical counseling and, um, and, and giving them hope. And I tell them God calls himself the God of hope. And what that means is he's got a monopoly on hope. If you want hope, you have to go to his store to get it. You don't get hope anywhere else, uh, the kind that you need at this point. And then number five, introduce the person to others in freedom at last and in the church family. And, and our people have learned to come up and welcome people and even people that have come. My, my wife and I, she has two or three ladies that sit with her who really won't come to church unless they're with Patty. And I've got four or five men. One just recently, three or four weeks ago, he said, Jim, I'm really glad you invited me to sit with you. He said, church is scary for me. I know I need to be here. And church is scary for me. And as long as I'm sitting next to you, I'm, I'm okay. I don't, he said, it's a funny thing. I don't, I don't know what to do about it, but he said, I just, I just feel safer here. I had a, I had a young man who uh, was in my newcomer class two weeks in a row, which normally the second week we put him in a care group. And I said, uh, Chris, don't you want to, you want to be in a care group? He said, Oh no. He said, I, I, I feel safe here. I, I know you. And I know it's the same message from last week, but I, I just, I just feel really safe here. Well, I don't say, well, Chris, you know, you got to get with a program here, buddy. Um, and so afterwards I said, Chris, tell me your story. And he said, I just got a, I just got out of prison. And he said, I've been in prison 14 years. And he said, I don't know anything about anything. I don't, I don't know how to use a cell phone. I don't know how to use a, a, a computer. I don't know how to look up anything on the Internet. I, I know nothing about living in this world. And I said, well, Chris, we'll help you with that. And he was in a, a resident. He got into a resident facility that was really helping him. And then he moved on to another state. But you have to remember when some a lot of people that come into our churches and they may be dressing like us, but they're not comfortable here. And somebody's got to be welcoming. And loving people. Um, and I try to introduce them to several people, and um, and then those people make sure they come over and welcome them every every service. And glad you're back. And um, so uh, there's a lot of connecting that we do. That means building trust and hope, and and um, defining what we're here to do, and and so forth. And then assess uh, the second. That is the um, the A. Determine the whole person needs, and I, I just list a checklist of things here. As you're working with folks you're discipling, counseling, always remain alert to any crisis elements. I mean, that's got to be top drawer for us. The president of immediate safety issues, uh, where there's uh, domestic abuse or domestic violence going on right now, uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse. Um, so we want to be very alert to that and and um, ask. Uh, you know, is it, uh, is, is some, is everything okay at home? When can we help you? Can we talk with you? And, and, uh, we had a little girl come in with her, uh, one of our care group leaders was, uh, also a, a substitute teacher in the public school. And she brought this little girl with her that's in her class. And the little girl, uh, uh, after, afterwards, she didn't want our care group leader to take her home. She said, I want to go home. And well, that's a that's a red flag that this little girl doesn't want to go home. So, and she was just laying down on a couch out in our lobby. And so, the care group leader asked me to talk with her, and I got down on my knees and I said, uh, "Carissa, um, Amy tells me you don't want to go home." And she said, "No." And I said, "Are you are you really scared to go home?" She said, "Yeah." And I said, "Are, are mommy and daddy at home?" She said, "No." And I said, "Who's at home right now?" She said, "I have a 14 year old brother." And then a baby sister, and um, my brother's taking care of her. And I said, "Are you afraid of your brother?" She said, "Yes. He he hits me and pushes me around." And and um, this care group leader knew her godmother because she often picked her up at work at, from school, and so she knew her. So she called the godmother and told her what was going on. And 
and the godmother came and picked her up. But I had to call DSS uh, because it looked like there was neglect here. These parents, she said, I said, what are your parents doing? She said, they're out playing bingo. I, I think it probably was more than bingo. I, you know, I don't know, but, um, but it's, it's neglect to leave an infant baby home with a 14 year old son who's, who's, uh, violent and angry. And, um, you know, we, we lost opportunity to minister to that family, but we did bring some intervention that brought some safety into that, at least for that. And, and the grandmother now is more, uh, the godmother is more aware of that. So, Safety is an important thing. Um, you want to be alert to safety issues, immediate safety issues, current addiction or trauma. These call for immediate attention must be distress, uh, d- d- addressed before working on character or skill development. Character are the spiritual issues we're dealing with here. And uh, skill issues, skill development, uh, helping them restore relationships and getting a job and, and that kind of thing. Uh, number two, I determine the spiritual uh, maturity level, the level of motivation to change, ed- educational background. So as you're talking with them, asking them to tell you the story, and that, that's true for anybody we're working with. I'm, I'm, I'm telling these in the context of addiction ministry, but it's true for anybody you're working with. Um, would you mind sharing me with your story of what brought you here today to talk with me? And, um, uh, and you can, it doesn't take long in the conversation to see how how they're solving problems and what level of spiritual maturity they're bringing into this and, um, and even their educational background. Um, when I, when I'm working with a man who, whose, um, speech is kind of labored and, and he, his word choice is, he's having a hard, he may be under meds in, in the mental health field, uh, but, but he also may have some real literacy problems. And um, so one of the things I do when I'm working with men or women, uh, with men, my wife works with the women, is um, I'll, I'll turn in the Bible or have them turn in their Bible. And if they can't find anything in the Bible, that tells me something about their spiritual literacy. And, and so uh, I, will, I will have them read, read that verse. And if they really stumble over that, then I know that we have a, a literacy problem. And so I'm going to have to go much slower and going to have to explain words and, and so forth. Um, number two. Oh, that's, that, that's this one. Um, we have several people that we have helped get connection to GED programs in town. And... Um, uh, and I tell you, when they, I remember one, one uh, gal, uh, she brought, single mom, brought her daughter, and um, w- just a sweet little black girl, and uh, brought, her, uh, brought her son, and her care group leader helped her get a driver's license, helped her finish her GED, and um, she came, and then she got a job that kept her out of freedom at last on Friday nights, but... Uh, she came and she went to her own black church in town, got reestablished there. But she came to our church one night and she said, I just want to let you all know what, what, what you all did for me. And she said, I have my own apartment. I have a job as a medical transcription clerk in town. After I finished my GED, I went on to Greenville Tech and got that. And, uh, God has just done wonderful things and thank you. Well, that's, I mean, you're changing the direction of, of a whole line of families to come. But this care group leader poured scores and maybe hundreds of hours into her life. But it made a difference. Um, Number three, determine any physical and financial needs if appropriate. you know, don't want to be intrusive about any physical needs. Um, we, we have a lady attending right now who is uh, going blind. She just had an operation and it wasn't successful. And now she's walking with a cane, a white cane. And our care group leader goes out and picks her up and brings her, brings her to church. And uh, she has uh, two girls who are a teenager and a husband who just got out of jail. And her husband is just starting to come. 
and is uh, and our men are really embracing him and befriending him, helping him get a job and um, making a difference. But but she has some real physical needs. So somebody goes in and when she a care group leader and other ladies will go when she's uh, having surgery or when she has a doctor's appointment and Joe's working and 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 you just provide the help that they need. And financial needs, we're very careful about that. We we don't. Um, uh, I don't give cash to anybody. If uh, I've had several times where somebody needed gas in a car, um, and I know that they are uh, staying clean and sober, I'm pretty sure that they are. Um, I'll I'll follow them to a gas pump and you know and fill it up for them. But but I, I won't give them the cash for that. That's too big of a, a temptation. Um, I have a small fund I can work with and. If somebody needs ten dollars to take a drug test to get a job, uh, I want to, and they don't have ten dollars, but they're looking for a job. Then the care group leader or somebody will go with them uh, to the, and pay for that that drug test and help them work, get onto the job. I, I just we don't want to become an unnecessary stumbling block to somebody. Um, determine the quality of social support network and interpersonal relationships if possible. Um, uh, oftentimes uh, they've burned all their relational bridges, and a lot of the people we counsel with on on, on a regular basis, even even within our church. My wife's working with a a thirty year old young woman right now, who's a member of our church, but and everything seemed to be fine in her life until it wasn't, and a whole bunch of stuff came out, and she's not reconciled to her family, and. Um, uh, and doesn't want to be reconciled to her family and is wondering why she's not growing and and uh, why God isn't answering her prayers. And so, um, you know, finding out the quality of their... She has no social support from home because she's burned that bridge. And we want to help in uh, the reconciliation of that. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. I alluded to this just yesterday a little bit. Um, but uh, this young man, Michael, his 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 uh, girlfriend was in the Phoenix Center. That's a detox facility in Greenville. And she was in there and she met a, a married man whose wife was in freedom at last. And he was in detox. And he was he was telling her about how as soon as he gets out of detox, he's going to freedom at last. And she needs to come, too. And and uh, and so she came and she brought Michael. He's. He was like six foot six, huge guy, and um, covered with tattoos. I, I mean, he had ink everywhere. And uh, in the newcomer class, I'm visiting with them, and uh, after I after I make the presentation, I said, "Michael, we're really glad to have you, you and Amy here." And he said, "Really?" He said, "Her church doesn't want me around." And I said, "I I hope you never feel that way here." Um, and he said, well, you know, so far everybody's been really kind to me. And I said, I, if, if anybody's not, I want to know. And he said, well, you know, I, it's been really nice. And, and I said, what, what kind of work do you do, Michael? And he said, I can't get a job. He said, I, w- would you hire somebody with all this ink? He said, it's the dumbest thing I ever did in my life. I can't get a job. And Starbucks hired him about three weeks later. Um, uh, and he worked, with, but, but I assigned him. To a care group with with uh, uh, one of our seminary students, real mild mannered guy, actually serving the Lord in an Arab country in a very high risk situation right now, and but really mild mannered guy, and and, uh, and his name is Jonathan, and uh, Jonathan really reached out to Michael, and Michael came up to him after he'd been there a couple of weeks, and he said he said Jonathan, what do you what do you do to hang out? We need to hang out, you and me. And he said, well, hanging out for me is going to the Bob Jones coffee shop and uh, talking theology with a couple of my friends. And he said, well, well, I'll go to a coffee shop and talk with you. And, and, and then he said, will they let me go on to Bob Jones? And Jonathan said, well, of course they will. So now Michael is telling me, I'm, I'm, I'm the teacher. I was at that time the teacher of the college and career group, about 70 young men and women who were out of undergrad or not in college at all. And so Jonathan wasn't married then, and he brought Michael. And Michael asked if he could give a testimony. And if they've been in AA, they they give testimonies. So I said, sure, because I I knew it would happen. And he was telling the class, he said, Jonathan took me to the coffee shop, and all those students were so friendly. 
and they were just so welcoming. And he said, after we got drinking our coffee, Jonathan got out his Bible and it was like he was inside my head. And he said, I got saved. And he's, he's telling this to my class of singles. He said, Jesus has forgiven all my sins. All my sins. He said, this is the most wonderful thing. And about four weeks later, he got baptized. I think I mentioned, may have mentioned this yesterday, but he, during his baptism, he was giving his testimony and he said, I, I just finished reading Luke. He just devoured his Bible. And he was reading, he said, and he said, I saw Jesus being crucified by those two thieves and they were mocking him. From the baptismal pool, he said, I used to mock Jesus. But if I died today, I'd be in paradise with him. Well, what does that do to an independent fundamental Baptist crowd? It kind of wakes you up. There's a lot of kingdom work that needs to be done. He walked out one Sunday before that and meeting our pastor at the door. He was shaking hands and he punched him in the shoulder. He said, hey, dude, you know, that's he said, dude, he said, I want to tell you something. This is the first family I've ever had. Faith Baptist Church is my family. And several months later, he had to move out to Washington State, take care of his mother who was declining in health. But. But a church has to become home and a safe place, a place where you're loved. People will come um, because they're loved. Um, so that's assess. Um, number five, uh, determine which challenges. Wait, I may have changed this for for this. Let me. Oh, five, explore losses, lies, and lusts. And page four of this handout is what I covered yesterday in that, in that uh, notepad discipleship thing. So if you want that information, you can uh, get the tape of that or the uh, download that. Uh, the last page of the book of our conference book tells you where to download the sessions. Uh, you can get that there. So I'm not going to spend time on that. Uh, the number five... Um, is um, I think I skipped this somewhere. Um, let, let me refer you to that SOS chart. Um, I use it with all my uh, the counselors I'm training. This is from Garrett Higby's Uncommon Community. It's a wonderful seminar. Um, and how he trains small group leaders in his church. And he's developed this SOS uh, that I'm using with his permission. Um, so you're, I, I, and I have my counselees, I mean my counselors, when they report to me about their counseling that week, I have them rate every week their, their, counsel, their counselee on this SOS chart. So I want them, I want my counselors to train them to be looking at the severity of the situation they're dealing with. Um, how intense is it on a scale of one to ten? Uh, number one is they just need help with wisdom issues. They're under mild stress, uh, kind of everyday problems. They just need a little direction. Or number five, more moderate conflict, distressed and functioning, more complex issues. And of course, ten is a crisis, stronghold sin, significant suffering. So I, I just want my counselees to be aware as they work with people, I mean my, the counselors I'm training, to be aware of, of where, where is your person on this level. And then the second, uh, the O is ownership. How, how, really you're asking how humble is this person? Is he repentant and open and highly teachable? And boy, I've, I've got, I've got one guy I've been working with for a couple of years who's like that. I mean, the guy is a sponge. He reads his Bible about an hour and a half every year before he goes and works in the thrift shop uh, for Miracle Hill. And he just, discipling him is a joy. When I come over, um, he, he has questions from his own Bible study and Bible reading, and it's just, it's just wonderful. Um, Number five, ownership. Does he see his sin, but he makes excuses? Moderately teachable. There are a lot of folks in that in, in our churches and 
in ministries. And number 10, is he blame-shifting, defensive, denial, he's unteachable, and, and there are people we work with that, like that. They don't actually, they don't stay working with you long when, when you um, uh, carefully, compassionately um, deal with their, um, have, to, have to oppose them. Uh, and then support, how connected is this person? Now, this is written for his care group, uh, for his uh, small group leaders. Is this person in your small group, close to the family, intimate and accountable, vulnerable in the group? He's willing to share his struggles and uh, victories. Uh, does he have some family support, few friends, somewhat open in group? Or number 10, is he estranged from family, no friends, and isolated? And I tell you, the thing I look for most is that ownership, that level of humility. Um, one of my lectures I have is from Matthew seven twenty four to twenty seven, where Jesus said, "Whosoever uh, would uh, whosoever would follow me, and let's, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, like unto wise men, and and so forth." And and so I, I I draw a baseball diamond and I say, first, humility is first base. You have to be willing to come to Jesus and listen to His words. And and first, uh, second base is hearing those words. Third base is doing them. Fourth base is wisdom and freedom. And so in in uh, teaching, I'll often say, so humility is what? And they'll all in unison say, first base. I want to keep reminding them how important humility is. Um, and that's part of this um, uh, chart. You'll see on the chart, uh, uh, below the chart, a way to kind of score those. And I have the counselors I'm I'm uh, training uh, score their counseling every week. I want them to see if there's any progress here and where that progress is on these uh, on these points. Um, number um, six, um, explore the nature of tempting triggers. And everybody you're working with in addiction ministry or not has points of temptation. We covered that yesterday. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own strong desires and enticed. Um, uh, these four P's, the, this is not the alliteration of a, of a preacher. Actually, actually this, the secular world acknowledges these, uh, and they're good. Uh, the presentation problem, uh, this is a problem for which the counselee seeks help. That's the one they come in and tell you about. Uh, but that's probably not their real problem. But they are going to find, it's kind of a trial balloon for most people. They want to see what you're going to do with that one. And if you won't take them seriously, and you don't really have, if you dismiss it and say, you're here talking about that. I mean, that's the attitude you convey. That's, man, that's, that's nothing. Well, that's the one you got for them to test what kind of attitude you have toward them. Preconditioning problems, the past problem, patterns of life which shape present responses. Boy, that is really important in dealing with life dominating sins. What, what is, um, and, and as I said yesterday, the biggest, one of the biggest triggers for anyone is a trial. Because then they're tempted to solve it their own way and their way of uh, their uh, way of practice. Precipitating problem problems that triggered the current presentation problem. My wife did it again, or my husband did it again. Um, the perpetuating problem influences that tend to reinforce current responses that the, the friends they have, the job they have. So all of that is part of assessment. I want to know this person as best I can in whatever time God gives me with them. And then restore. This is a discipleship component. Help restore and rebuild relationship with God and others. They may not have a relationship, so it's not, you can't disciple until they're evangelized. Um, but number one, address next steps for reconciliation with God. Genuine repentance and faith leading to salvation and or restoration of fellowship with God. Um, and then help to establish the disciplines of Christian growth, which will promote growth in Christ-likeness. Um, the Freedom at Last curriculum is like Awanas for Adults. I think I mentioned that yesterday. It's, it's scripture memory. It's filling in blanks and brief Bible study. It's church attendance is a requirement. Journaling is a requirement. What, what, so what are we trying to do? We're trying to teach them some content, but also teach them the disciplines that will help them in Christian growth. Um, as often as possible, identify and address problems using specific scriptures, appropriate homework, and appropriate accountability in order to promote sanctification. So this is where, you know, we discover the, the horrible anger problem or, or the shame of abuse or, 
um, the shame of having a felony on your record and trying to rebuild your life, the shame of two divorces, uh, the shame of three um, abortions. My wife's working with a woman right now has had three abortions. And I, I'll say this, too, about safety. Our churches need to become safe places for everybody. Um, on Mother's Day, I was, as a deacon, we have a rotation of who does a Sunday morning prayer. And on that Sunday morning, I was thanking the Lord for, on behalf of everybody, for godly mothers who have influenced our lives. But working with a lot of these men and women, they've not had godly mothers. Their mothers are the ones that started them addiction. Their mothers are the ones who had men in the house that abused them. Mother's Day is not a happy day for those men and women. And so I prayed for those who have not had godly mothers, whose mothers were horrible stumbling blocks to them, and help them as they sit here today to have grace from God to deal with the bitterness and the anger that they carry over from that. And I prayed for those who are longing to be mothers and have not been able to be. And for those who have been mothers and aborted the baby and now are dealing with that guilt and that shame, and for the the ones who long to be mothers, for the ones who have who've been mothers and lost their babies, and for the mothers who are here whose children have walked away from the Lord, there are a lot of mothers in our congregation. We can do these wonderful, shining Mother's Day messages about about motherhood and all that kind of thing. More and more people in our congregation, motherhood is not a happy thought. And unless you're working with people up close, you don't even realize that. I mentioned that in that article just just briefly. I'm not saying it shouldn't change our preaching. But if we don't mention those kinds of things in our preaching, the people out there don't think we know anything about how they live. I cannot tell you how many women came up to me over the next two weeks and said, thank you for that prayer. I can't tell you which category I'm in, but I'm one of those. I struggle with this every year. And some women don't even come to church on Mother's Day. Well, if, if we're really working with the people up close, we know that. And it ought to be expressed in the way we, we tenderly deal with, product, with, with problems. There was a, some, we, we show some kind of video, a brief video on Mother's Day, Father's Day, and um, Memorial Day, and, and uh, so forth. And um, our, this year, the pastor who's in charge of that found a video that expressed all of that in a very tender, compassionate way. And it tells the people, we get it. We know where you are. And if you struggle with any of this, let us help you. Number four, assist in reconciliation with others if necessary. And and for those, I I went over that repentance for reconciliation yesterday uh, if you want some help with that. And then lastly, enlist. Uh, what resources can you draw upon within the curriculum, uh, or within the church and within the broader body of Christ to help the counselee? So th- that means, uh, you know, like this United Way brochure. There are other resources we can draw upon. And, and I will have somebody come up to me and say, Jim, I need housing and uh, can you find housing for me? And I'll say, well, you know, and, and this is a very competent person. Um, but it's easy once you've been into addiction to to feel helpless. And 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 it's not just playing a victim. It's like it, it is a learned helplessness that I can't do anything about my life. I'm not competent enough. Because look where it's gotten me so far. And so I will pull out a United Way brochure and I'll say, here's the section about affordable housing. And I would suggest tomorrow you start making calls to them and asking them what, what can be done. And they said, can you call that for me? And I said, you know, really, I, um, you know, if, if you weren't able to do that, I, I could do that for you, but you are able to do that and you need to do that. Because once you get that housing, you're going to be dealing with them every every month and not me. So you may as well start dealing with them at the very beginning. And I, I try to be very kind about that, but I want to push them into responsible behavior. Um, we have a lady in our church who for years taught Greenville Tech <clears throat> English uh, for adult learners. 
And um, she came to me one day and said, Jim, um, if you got anybody who doesn't know how to read or is, is trying to get a GED, I'd be glad to coach him. And so she helped a couple of men, and then she, her husband got really ill, and she had to take care of him. But but um, there, there are people in our churches, if they, if they know what the needs are, and you know what the needs are because you're dealing with people all the time, you can connect people in your church. Um We have some men in our church who will sit down and help somebody work out a budget. And uh, we have a lady whose husband is in prison right now. He'll be in prison the rest of his life for uh, child pornography and molesting um, a boy. And um, uh, they've got a business that they were running that she's been trying to maintain uh, on her own. And and, uh, three years of back taxes that they've never done. And um, a, a father who died and left a house, and so they're just. They, she needs direction. She's not. She's not an educated woman. She's a hardworking woman, and an accountant in our church has become her personal advisor, and works through all of those things with her. And so you bring those resources together. Um, and number two, what resources can you draw upon from your local community to help the counseling? So. Um, now, I'm, I'm, I'm using this same thing, the same model with anybody I'm counseling, not just with addiction strugglers. Um, and, and by the way, I, I, the, the title here says, A Care Model for Counseling Addiction Suffers. I've actually moved that to strugglers. Um, I, I very rarely call somebody an addict or talk about addicts. I talk about addiction strugglers. I, I, I want them to recognize, I, I recognize the fight, the struggle that this is. Suffering, calling them addiction sufferers can kind of make them feel victimized. And so I'm moving away from that into addiction strugglers because they all know it's a struggle. And they, by using that term, they know that I know it's a struggle. That I'm not just dismissing them as an addict. You made your bed sleep in it. But there are people in our church who who can help or with, with some with some remedial training can help out in discipleship so um, but as I said this is a, this is a, a format I use uh, in in my own counseling when I'm working with somebody long term in particular um, and this is the model I teach my students and, and uh, they have to report back to me uh, about their counselees and I have them answer um, every every one of these if they have changed over the the past week, um, as well as tell me what the counseling content was and and what the assignments were and what their what their agenda for the next time is. Um, we've got a few minutes for questions. Any questions? Yes, Mike. Yes, we do, and I'm grateful there's a whiteboard up here. Um, I, I do, because um, and, and even, even the world, fortunately, has begun recognizing that there, there is, in drug use, a, a physical dependency. Okay, so grandma goes into heart sur- uh, hip surgery, and, and I say grandma, that's that's me, you know, I'm that age. <laughs> but grandma goes in for hip surgery and there's some complications and she's in she's has to be in there for three weeks on on a drip of morphine. Morphine is pharmaceutical grade heroin. For three weeks she's on this drip twenty four seven. She becomes physically dependent. Has nothing to do with how spiritual you are. There, there's, there are chemical processes going on that make her with, uh, with, uh, tolerance and, and eventual withdrawal. And grandma, before she gets out, the doctors are going to try to wean her off and put her on something, uh, less strong. But physical dependency, um, you deal with that by, um, where's my eraser? Whether it's grandma or a drug addict by, by detox. That is not addiction. Grandma doesn't come out of the hospital. She comes out dependent, but she's not a junkie. 
She doesn't come out looking for a dealer to find some heroin because she's she's now, because of the drugs, she's an addict. She's not an addict. She's physically dependent. And there's a huge difference. And she's not an addict because she doesn't like the side effects of this drug. She doesn't like the brain fog. She doesn't like the the emotional roller coaster she is on on that drug. She she doesn't like these side effects. And she wants to get back to something. Her family, her grandkids, her garden, her knitting, whatever she wants to get back to, and her Bible study group. So she she gets off this drug as quickly as she can because of the side effects. She'll even endure more pain because she doesn't like all this brain fog. That make sense? Now, that drug has side effects. If the side effects are advantageous to you to solve your problem, she doesn't have a good family to go back to. When she goes back to that family, she's going to be thrown out on the street again. And, and, and actually, the side effect of that drug that makes her brain numb and, and keeps her emotions kind of uh, flat and this kind of thing, that's welcome. When grandma begins to use the side effects of that drug as a problem solver beyond the pain, we now have an addict. And that's where, this is where addiction comes in, is where I'm using a substance or an experience to alter moods. Got the wrong alter here. So whether it's the porn that alters the moods when I'm lonely and I indulge in the porn or, uh, or addiction or, or gambling that gives me a high in the pursuit of it or whether it's, um, uh, uh, using substances to alter my moods either to give me a high or peace. I can have a couple of beers and and life mellows out, or my marijuana, life mellows out. When I'm using any of those things to alter my moods and they become habits, now I'm an addict. It's not the substance that keeps anybody addicted. It's the substance that makes withdrawal difficult, but the thing that keeps people in addiction, and this is not just biblical counseling, this is secular practitioners in addiction who decry the, the medical model that addiction is a disease. There's a whole bunch in the medical field you'll never hear in the, in the, on the news. whole bunch in the medical world say, this is not a disease. These are people using a drug to cope with life. Well, who knows how to help people cope with life? That should be the church. And so I, I explained to them, uh, even in, even, you know, in, in a rotation basis, um, your drug is not what keeps you dependent, uh, what keeps you ad- addicted. It's using the drug to solve those problems. And we're here as disciples of Jesus to learn how to solve problems his way. We don't need drugs to do that. When this overlaps, when you have somebody looking to a drug to solve problems, now this would be called drug addiction. But there was in the 60s this whole idea, when the hippie movement hit, this whole idea that drugs, that, that, that the addiction was in the drug itself. Dependence is in the drug, but not addiction. And um, so they're doing all these experiments with rats, you know, and they give them this morphine, choice of morphine water with a little sweetener in it because morphine's bitter, and give them this morphine or water, and these rats in these solitary cages we're choosing the morphine over and over and over again. In the 1970s, a guy named Bruce, um, I can't think of his last name, Alexander, up in Canada, he said, but rats don't live in solitary confinement. And he developed what was called rats, Rat Park in his laboratory. And he took one corner, made a big L out of plywood, filled it with debris and, and um, dirt and tin cans and stuff, and he took all of these rats out of the cages, put them in Rat Park, and they're the happiest rats, and they're running around and playing and having fun and making babies, and they're they're just and and he was giving them the same choice of morphine water and water, and they always took the water. And he said nobody likes to live in solitary confinement, and, and of course then he extrapolated that to humans. And <clears throat> but what really sealed that is at about the same time in the, this is the Vietnam War era, 
And, and over 50% of the men and women who went to Vietnam became addicted to heroin. Their entire tour of duty, they were using heroin. And, of course, the DOD was very concerned about that. And so they were tracking these men and women, men at that time, coming back from the battlefield and found out that like 93 or 95% of those men stopped using heroin the instant they came to the U.S. with no relapse and no treatment programs. Why? Because now the, the drug over there was serving a purpose to alter the moods of all the crummy stuff they were doing and the stuff they were seeing. Now it interfered, the, the morphine, uh, the, the opiates interfered with what they wanted to get back to, and they quit it instantly with no relapse. Did they, did they have problems with, with uh, withdrawal? Yeah, they did. But they would tolerate that because they wanted something better, the old life they used to have. So that's important for us to understand. Anybody using porn or cutting or star- self-starvation or overeating is trying to alter a mood. Oh, yeah. Well, it serves our purposes. When you can call it, a, oh, boy, don't get me going on this. But, but, but you already did. Sorry, the horse is out of the gate. If you call, if you call something a disease, then you can get, then you can get um, insurance to pay for it. And so you can open a clinic to help the disease addiction. If you want to watch a fascinating documentary, it's called The Business of Recovery. You can get it on Netflix or on um, Apple. The business of recovery. Fascinating. And the the industry, they call it a disease, but 95% of the facilities in the U.S. and the clinics in the U.S. use 12 steps as their therapy. That's using talk therapy for a medical disease. Try that with your cancer. You just talk to it. You know, you can have a cancer support group, and that's helpful. I'm not decrying that. But that's not the treatment. They use 12 steps as a treatment for a medical disease. That that betrays what they really believe. And 12 steps and the evidence basis um, uh, constantly comes back 10 to 15% effectiveness. Well, so you have 95% of the facilities and clinics in the U.S., Using a treatment plan that gains 10 to 15 percent success of of um, sobriety after a year. That is not even good business. But if you're in the recovery business, man, you can rake in all kinds of insurance money, and they'll treat you as long as your insurance uh, stays. And then and then your mom and dad mortgage their house, put a second mortgage on their house, or sell their house. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that story. Um, but there's there's a lot wrong here, and and this, you know, all you gotta do is follow the money on that one. Um, but we deal with this part. This is this is the soul part. This is the body part. And you can't solve problems of anger and despair and shame and guilt in the soul by putting a substance in your body. Only Jesus solves soul problems. And that's and when people understand that, they think, got it, I'm coming back next week. Because this is a soul problem. Now, the body is involved. Now, I'll just say this and I'll let you go. Anybody can leave anytime you want. But in the, in the body part, um, the, the, essentially what this is, is um, a supercharged habit. Because you're continually... And the way we form habits is by repetition, right? You add an emotional component to repetition and you have super habituation. You have what we see in addiction. Um, And and people say, well, does the brain rewire? The the brain learns. If, If your brain couldn't change, you couldn't learn anything. Of course it changes. Um, and it changes quicker when there's a strong emotional component to this. So when I was four years old, I learned to tie my shoes. I, I think I was about four. I didn't get any, exi- I may have gotten, you know, really proud about it the first time I got all the loops right. I, I tie my shoes today and I get no rush. 
So this does not become a habit, you know, that I'm addicted to. But anything that has an emotional component to it, that's the mood-altering component. Anything that has, whether it's pornography or gambling or any of these what are called behavioral or process addictions, they're, they're, people go to them to alter the moods, and they go to the drugs to alter the moods. Anytime you, you, you have that emotional component, you, you get super habituation. In other words, that becomes more enslaving, uh, quicker. So, uh, and then there, there's a, the tolerance thing here. You take away the drug or the alcohol, and for a little while, they can't feel anything. I, they're, they're very flat, and you have to help prepare them. You're not going to feel good at all for several weeks while your body begins to produce its own endorphins and its 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 own um, uh, chemicals because you, the the drugs have been doing that for your body and your body just quit doing it and you you get rid of that chemical and your body isn't producing anything that makes you feel good and you got to be willing to let your body take that and the problem there is that most of them are not healthy. While they're, unaddi- while they're addicted, they're not eating well. They're not eating, they're eating junk food or not eating at all. They're going several days without food while they're on meth. And, um, so their body's gonna heal a little slower. And that's where we provide, you have to provide a lot of encouragement to the individual you're working with. That's why having them already in a faith-based recovery center, even if it's not biblical counseling oriented, at least gets them clean and sober, and and they will deal with them about these physical and the, and the mood components about it, even if even if it, it's it's not dealt with in uh, dealing with the trials in a thoroughly biblical way. But that's where we can bring that component in. Great question. No, it's not going to. You have to have a layman that's going to run it. Usually somebody who's come out of addiction and is real excited about helping people. And, and then our curriculum provides the, the structure and even the recorded lessons that they can do. Um, I won't take more time to discuss that part of Freedom at Last, but Ben can talk to you out there at the booth. This has been the Proclaim and Defend podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and give us a good review. If you want to learn more about the FBFI, check out our website at fbfi.org or our blog, Proclaim and Defend, at proclaimanddefend.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Proclaim and Defend podcast.